Hello, and welcome to Hyped, the podcast for the culturally curious that turns a critical eye on some of the most hyped books, plays, films, music, and TV of recent years. Join us as we work out where these cultural trends have come from and what they reveal about modern society. I'm Zoe Strimple, columnist, dating expert, and historian of gender in modern Britain. And I'm Tom Stammers. I'm a historian of France and a general cultural glutton with a weakness for all things 19th century. Zoe and I have been consuming and debating culture together ever since we were at university, uh, which is now so long ago, indeed, that it felt like it was Elizabeth I, not Elizabeth II, who was on the throne. Yeah, I think you were Walter Raleigh, actually, the great traveller <laughs> at the time. <laughs> Today we are uh, discussing Macbeth, the version that has been on at the Almeida Theatre in London, starring, and Tom, you, you know I can never pronounce her name, Shorsha Ronan, the uh, Irish uh, film star. Um, it was completely sold out immediately um, beyond our most ardent attempts to uh, get tickets. So we actually watched it by streaming, which we had to pay £25 for, I think. Um, so that's, that, is, that is how successful, popular and hyped this uh, production was. I'd say it's the most talked about thing in London in, in months, if not a whole year. Um, tell us a bit more about the critical response, Tom. So I think it's interesting with the critical response, as you say, that I, there's one review that says it's finally back. We're in the theatre. Like a lot of people have felt that this is the first theatrical experience they've had since lockdown. You know, people have felt that this play embodies everything that's best about being back at live theatre. Um, the Independent gave it five stars and said, Shorsha Ronan breathes new life into timeless words. Um, and equally, the Evening Standard says, Shorsha Ronan shines in her London debut. Now, you and I might have a discussion shortly, Zoe, about whether Shorsha Ronan deserves all of the praise that has been heaped upon her uh, for this performance. But I suppose one thing to say at the beginning is I haven't seen a Macbeth on stage for quite a while. Um, and it's interesting because there's been a lot of Hamlets in London recently. There's been a lot of King Lears. It seems like Lear is everywhere. Uh, but Macbeth is not much performed uh, comparatively. And I know that you're a big Macbeth fan, Zoe. Um, why do we think Macbeth is sort of less frequently on the stage? I mean, you say I'm a big Macbeth fan. Macbeth intrigues me because it is the sort of big tragedy that isn't quite in that inner circle. And I think that's interesting because it's not 100% clear why it fills a slightly strange space in the pantheon of Shakespearean tragedies. I, I do think the language is incredible in Macbeth. I love the relentlessness of the uh, tropes about time. So that was a reason that I personally like it. But in terms of why it's often neglected, I think that in a way what people love about Lear and Hamlet is the family element, almost like a sort of Buddenbrook, sort of like family saga yeah. going on um, where the, the father is betrayed by his daughters. He's, he's obsessed with this dynasty and the, the bonds of family are distorted, but they are there to begin with. There is the loving daughter. Hamlet also obviously wants to have a, a right functioning family. And that's also about trying to restore the family bond gone wrong. And I think that gives people this dramatic connection or, or the ability to, to identify with what's going on maybe that Macbeth doesn't. Maybe Macbeth feels too weird, literally the weird sisters. Mm. And it feels too detached from family building and family destruction and then family restitution at the end. Because it's never really about family it's it's about this weird couple that doesn't apparently have any 
children. Um, so there's yes. a, there's a dynasty issue. So it, it, I think it's, it's just a strange sort of parallel world, really Macbeth that, that just doesn't have the same means to resound. What do you think, Tom? I think that's, that's spot on though, because I think it's really interesting, the childlessness of Macbeth, which is one of the things that's sort of spotlighted kind of subtly here, I thought. Um, but yes, thinking about them as a kind of barren couple, and then also thinking about Macbeth um, himself as a sort of betraying son, you know, Duncan, the king, played amazingly in this production, I thought, by William Gaunt with his um, oxygen mask and a very COVID touch. Mm. Um, uh, it's actually about the betrayal of those sort of family bonds. So you're right to say there is something very weird. I think it's also the supernatural has often been seen a problem. You know, it's been seen a little bit gothic or maybe a little bit silly in the wrong hands. And what I liked about this was that it, it didn't really play very much with the black magic of it at all. The Weird Sisters, you know, aren't very weird. It's sort of, uh, it's a kind of little uh, group of three, uh, well, two older women and, and one very powerful kind of uh, black actress. And they're, you know, as one reviewer said, more like a chorus, really, than the Weird Sisters. You know, they're there on the stage all the time watching. They're just more of an audience, really, rather than sort of makers of magic. Um, so it did feel, I mean, I, one thing I wrote to myself was like, is this a sort of disenchanted Macbeth? It's certainly Macbeth that's not interested in all the sort of tricks and the spells. It's quite pared back, the staging. It relies on a sort of basic sort of elemental symbolism that, that pushes that quite far. I think it, it does quite a good job with it. The supernatural point is interesting, especially given that in Hamlet, obviously the ghost of the father um, is is a part that that works very well somehow, that there's never any question of it being silly, even though it can be played in a silly way. And I think, again, that's because the supernatural element in Hamlet almost doesn't feel supernatural. It just feels psychological. Um, and it mm. also feels like it it just gets to the heart of everything that, that a grieving son might feel or anything to do with memory um, and conscience. And, and so it's interesting that there are actually these other ways of the supernatural coming into to Shakespearean plays and tragedies specifically. But there is just, yes, something bloodless about the way it is in, in Macbeth. I also want to ask, Tom, why do you think Macbeth now? What What is the, you know, we've, we've touched on why it might be a little bit of a, of a misfit, even though it's so brilliant. But what are the themes that are speaking to people now? Why do you think the Almeida has gone for it? Is it just because we're all sick of Lear, Hamlet, measure for measure, et cetera? I, I think it was, I think it's something quite savage about it. Um, and maybe we are more open to being kind of, uh, to have something visceral. It was very brutal. And so one way it was staged was to really kind of show the kind of children as victims, you know, especially the whole plot around Macduff and the murder of Lady Macduff and the murder of her children was really gory. I mean, was really kind of brutal and visceral. And I suppose the other thing that made it feel an even blacker Macbeth than it usually is, was that sense of it being a sort of pessimistic circle. Um, you know, one touch that I really liked is at the beginning, you have the weird sisters saying, and when shall we meet again? And in this production, they were actually brought back at the end. And when shall we meet again? And so this sense that even with the fall of Macbeth, the kind of cycle of troubles, you know, the cycle of crisis continues. And there was a lovely touch with Macduff's son, Fleance, I think he's called Fleance, um, with a kind of gun in his hand at the end. You know, in a weird way, the next king is bringing another sort of cycle of, of problems. So there was something really unrelentingly tragic about it. And I think that does speak to a sense of us being interested in what's sort of ritualistic about it or what's um, 
the kind of the, the sheer pessimism of the play, I suppose. Um, and you think that speaks a, to a, us a now? Do you think that do you think there's something about that 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 kind of resounds with people's sense that politicians and politics has become futile, that it's it's just kind of people jockeying for for power without any um, any interest in the affairs of state, for instance. I mean, Hamlet is does meant that I think the affairs of state kind of come into it a little bit more. I'm not sure about in Lear, but do you think that there is something about the the broken political class and the futility of transfer of power, maybe that that is somehow speaking to people, or or is it actually just the way that is it just that we in this moment find the Lady Macbeths of the world fascinating? Because mm. actually, for gender, Macbeth is is a really interesting play. It's really unusual for that period to you know have have this sort of childless uh woman wearing the pants uh calling all the shots um and then obviously the, the witches who who in this production seem really quite calm and yet they mm. they know everything so the the real engine is is really the the women here and i think that's yep. that's actually completely unique and that's one thing where they have innovated and i i agree with you zoe i think the kind of the hopelessness is related to the way that they kind of rethink lady macbeth um, because one textual addition that they've done is the scene, um, you know, there's a moment just before she's murdered when Lady Macduff, um, you know, is, is warned that she should run away. You know, she realises that her husband has left and that the killers are coming for her and she's warned to flee. And in this production, they give those lines to Lady Macbeth. So we actually have her almost going against her husband. Like she's given a, she's given a much more beefed up role, interestingly. Um, and it's interesting with the political theatre, too, that there's a brilliant moment, I thought, at the start of the second act where, you know, various people have gathered round to be kind of hosted by the new king and queen. And it's him who kind of collapses at the microphone. You know, they do it as this sort of public, like public performance in a way with sort of dancing and there's the microphone. And she's the one desperately trying to keep the show on the road. And he is the man is the one that's disintegrating. So yeah, they, they really foreground her as the most, um, not just calculating, but also the most kind of competent character for, for a large part of the play. So I think it's interesting in this version that Lady Macbeth is actually given a much bigger role and she's made a much um, more important actor. And actually we get to explore a little bit of her own conflict about what's happened, not just her husband's guilt and, you know, and ravings. You know, there's this lovely bit where Macbeth says he has scorpions in his mind, um, but also that we see something similar going on with her. I often feel like I have scorpions in my mind, Tom. Uh, I don't know if you would uh, you would identify with that. I think I think you definitely have scorpions in my mind. That's Zoe. Mm -hmm. um, I think I think you're right. They, they've given her more depth. But I mean, in terms of the casting, this much buzzed role, casting Shorsha Ronan, do you think she pulled it off? And also, what did you make of McArdle um, and his interpretation of Macbeth? How did they register as a pair, and how were their acting abilities working in synchrony or against each other? Or yeah, what did you make of the casting? Zoe, I have three words for you, and they are come to parley. Okay, <laughs> come to parley. <laughs> I should say, Zoe could not get over the Irishness of Shorsha Ronan <laughs> on a stage that was otherwise full of very macho Scottish voices. And it's interesting that they went for a very Celtic Macbeth. Like all the guys, even the, the kind of black actors have got these kind of powerful Scottish accents. And it's very manly and it's very virile. And um, they went for a very Irish Lady Macbeth. And um, I felt she got better as it went on, but I, I think at the beginning, I didn't feel she had the presence um, that might be needed in that, you know, some of Lady Macbeth's first speeches are so blood curdling. All of that stuff about, you know, unsex me here, you murdering ministers and all of that. 
she was never creepy, I suppose. Maybe that's the thing about Trisha Raymond. I was never kind of unsettled by her. Um, but she did capture some of the kind of psychological angst as it went on more, more successfully. I thought he was out of this world. I mean, I thought James McArdle was completely brilliant um, and gave a much more kind of three-dimensional look Beth, I guess, than, than you know, many people have thought is possible. I was going to ask Zoe, do you think it's, how do you think she fared as a Hollywood actress coming to London? Because I guess there's a tradition here of big American stars wanting to prove that they can do Shakespeare and that they can be in the West End. Um, what, did you, what did you make of it as a sort of proving her, her credentials as an actress? Well, I've never liked her that much, actually. Um, I uh, thought she was quite tiresome in um, Lady Bird, for instance, um, and Brooklyn. Um, you know, she's, she's good on film, but I've never warmed to her. In general, I'm, I'm in favour of Hollywood actresses uh, taking a turn on the London stage because it, it, shows, it shows us that they're actually interested in the craft as well as everything that goes with it being a film star. In her case, I, I think she's better. Obviously, I've just said I don't like her that much, but I, <laughs> I think she's better in film uh, than on stage. I really struggled at the beginning to distinguish between her and cool popular girl playing in the school play in sixth form. <laughs> there, there wasn't that much difference. Lots of monochrome emotion, you know, high-pitched, articulating everything loudly and slowly, which I imagine is what actors learn to do when they're 16 and they're in school. And obviously sexy, very sexy, wearing a white, oh, ironic white um, sort of trouser mm. suit. But anyway, here's this like sexy pantsuit, cool, crinkly hair, uh, Lady Macbeth um, up in Scotland um, in the dark, doing a lot of shouting and being very sexy. Um, and so, yeah, so I think she she did become better. As you you mentioned, one extreme example of her Irish accent, come to parley. And I'm not sure what parley means. I suppose it means talk as in parley. Uh, but but it just, it just killed, it just was all, it was just too much for me. So that was my view on that. Yeah, I, I think that the Hollywood turn um, is brilliant. It's actually really good for everyone, as far as I can tell. Okay, fine, maybe there's a, a struggling actor who could have done with the part. But I think anything that brings um, attention and praise to London theatre, which remains the best in the world by a very long way. And it's such an important part, amen, such an important part of the economy. And I think that's great. Uh, Tom, what do you think about the sort of idea that it's, it's, there's a double punch going on to keep London theatre in good, good shape after COVID? One is the sort of import of Hollywood actresses, the other is this quite sort of sleek double act as a, as a movie, essentially, that we paid yep. to see. What do you think about all so that? I think it's really interesting, as you say, Hollywood actress in a quite sort of very sort of cinematic version of Macbeth. I mean, I've not quite seen a streamed production that was as slick as this. I mean, you felt like it had almost been made to be filmed. It's not just sort of pointing the camera at the stage and following them as they move, but it was completely kind of immersive. Um, and I mainly wonder like how far the director, uh, who's the Israeli director, Yael Farber, how far she knew it was going to be filmed when it was initially conceived or how far it was kind of re-blocked to capture that. Um, one thing it's also worth saying is the reason that we wanted to have a giggle, Zoe, there is something about watching Macbeth on a Saturday afternoon at home while eating artichokes and laughing at accents. <laughs> like I feel that our viewing experience is probably not optimum. Whereas there is something about actually, if we'd seen it in the theater, I'm sure people might've felt much more shattered, you know, partly because it is unrelentingly grim. It's long, it's a kind of three hour Macbeth, which is surprising because actually Macbeth is Shakespeare's shortest play. That's a fact for you, Zoe. It's actually wow, the shortest Shakespeare. That. Is it really? Um, 
not. This is what I learned. It's the shortest play, apparently. Um, That's not so how it's I a thought w- when I was studying it for my undergraduate final. <laughs> And it feels, and it is long, even though they've taken out the porter. So mm. one of the big omissions is this kind of black comic character, you know, this kind of macabre comedy in the final act. That's all removed. So it does just feel sort of grindingly grim, like grindingly sort of intense. Whereas if you're watching on a Saturday afternoon uh, and kind of giggling at actors and giggling at costumes, you know, it, it, <laughs> they, you know, we get the freedom to kind of think about it a little bit more ironically. Um, and I do think there probably is a massive difference between the critics who were there in the room and felt like this was a sort of suffocatingly intense experience and those of us who, for the same price as a theatre ticket now, um, the thousands of us that are watching it, you know, at, at other times of day. And um, I thought it was very, very filmic. How, I mean, well, that's very interesting. Now, now I think in, in any discussion of a filmed uh, play in this day and age has to think about the effect of several years of the golden age of streaming services to what degree do you think they staged it to be not just slick on film but to compete with like succession the aesthetics of a of a mm. cool monochrome series to me it looked like that it, it, it required as long as unbelievable to think it was a live performance yeah. Yeah. do you think that as an audience in a way we're becoming more comfortable with with watching things on the screen even theater or do, do you think there is still something massively qualitatively different to being actually in the in the room i mean does theater actually have a space or a place rather um you know in this age of high def kind of amazing immersive tv uh in light of my general attitudes towards technology zoe you'll be unsurprised to hear that i think high def has not killed the theater um <laughs> but i do think i mean it's the sort this was the sort of production that made me wish that i could have seen it in both forms like I could have seen it live and I think I would have had a really different experience, partly because of the tyranny of mood. You know, when you're in a theatre, you're not just having kind of your mood set by the actors. You're also having the mood set by your peers. You know, and I, and I think in a way, watching it at home, your freedom intellectually to kind of, as I say, poke fun, to kind of look at it with a bit more kind of irreverence. Um, there's something quite liberating about watching it. And I don't think it's necessarily inferior. I think sometimes it's nice to be able to have a bit more of a kind of creative freedom in how you watch something rather than be swept along in the communal experience. And I should say hats off to the director who is completely amazing, Yael Farber, and and did this wonderful production of The Crucible. Did you see that, Zoe, a couple of years ago? No, I don't think I did see that. Where the whole theatre, again, like the whole auditorium became part of the set. You know, she's brilliant at these really gothic but completely immersive kind of coup de théâtre kind of spectacles. And I thought this was filmed in such a way that it did, it made you feel, even though it's quite simple in terms of the staging, like, you know, it's, there's a tap with the water and the gilt. There's a clock for the ticking of time. There's a couple of see-through screens because guess what? Every production these days that sees itself as modern has to have a couple of see-through screens. Uh, you know, despite the fact it was quite simple, it did feel... Um, you know, it, the most the most was done with them, like with a, with a limited means, with an economy of means, a lot of kind of theatrical effect was, was generated. What, what do you, um, just in closing, uh, Tom, should we just think about, you know, the, the, the appeal of the bard himself? Because I'm thinking, you know, here we are talking about Macbeth and the sellout and everyone being in there having this amazing experience. Shakespeare's bloody hard to understand unless you know the play mm. inside and out. 
what is, you know, do you think all those people could just listen and understand it all? Or what, what was everyone in it for? Do, does everyone just still want to say, does everyone think they should like Shakespeare? Do you think people are genuinely being transported by the fragments of the language that they can actually understand? Um, is it just a very educated audience? Um, and, you know, w- what kind of Shakespeare do you think has a role in the next period? I mean, given that the, the heavy hitters are reeled out so often, um, do you think it's time for like a Cymbeline or a Pericles? I think they would call for some really clever directing. Like, you know, what a challenge to try and make Cymbeline really, really sing. I'll tell you what, I'd love to see Zoe, and I've only seen once on stage, but I think it's such an interesting play. Troilus and Crescent. Oh, Troilus and Crescent is amazing. It's an amazing play. It's not done very often. And for thinking about the, again, the weird mix of the tragic and the comic and like Shakespeare, you know, like piercing bombast, you know, kind of, you know, this sort of brilliant sense of skewering pretension. Um, I, would lo- I would love to see uh, a great, a great Troilus. Um, Zoe, in terms of whether people understood it, I do think it's probably a victory for, for mood and for feeling over an understanding of every single point of the script, um, because it did succeed this production in creating this, this sort, of, uh, sort of sense of inexorable doom, I suppose. You were sort of swept along with it. Um, but yeah, and I think people just still think that Shakespeare is substantial. Like, I think there's, there are a lot of plays at the moment that are sort of short and provocative and sort of ironic. And I think there is something quite nice about having a kind of bath of language, you know, just going and taking a deep dive into something where, you know, you just sort of take a big plunge into the language. So I think you don't have to fully understand every single line in it to feel something, you feel nourished somehow by the sheer abundance of it. Does that seem fair? It does. And I, I think that despite the fact that I did an English degree and I've had to study Shakespeare a few times, I, I can't understand it any more than the, the next person. But I still find myself hooting with enjoyment at terms <laughs> like mousing owl. And, you know, Tom, we had a real laugh about certain turns of phrase and, 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 you know, the old tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow to the last syllable of recorded time. And, you know, but there, there is brilliant stuff that, that does make you feel kind of really like bathed in that in that rich language, especially in the slightly decimated linguistic environment that we now all live in because of electronic communication, if that doesn't sound too Luddite. So why the hype? Quite simply, it's the best male performance of Macbeth anyone can remember. Like, James McArdle deserves to win every Olivier Gong going. Um, I think people are craving a substantial night at the theatre at a time when when the West End is coming back or otherwise just getting a deluge of of musicals and and sort of tinsel, as it were. and also, like, it did have a buzz. You know, when we tried to get tickets, there were 8,000 people ahead of me in the queue. And um, there is something about people wanting the hot ticket. You know, Almeida's such a small venue. It's really hard unless you book ahead, unless you're a friend, that you generate buzz by the sheer amount of disappointment you create. So I think some of the hype is to do with the kind of the status of the Almeida. I suppose the status of the director as well. You know, and the Almeida has been the playground of Robert Icke. Now, I don't know if you saw any of those Robert Icke productions, Zoe, but there was that very <laughs> fashionable Oris Dyer. Yes, I loved so that, but this, that wasn't at the I Almeida. That, I saw that in a different theatre and it was the most exquisite thing I've ever seen. That was, in, that was in I Trafalgar saw it at Studios. Trafalgar, but yeah. it started at the Almeida. Okay, yeah. And so all I'm saying is there's something about Jarl Faber being this kind of, you know, auteur director. I think we're also interested, there's an interesting thing happening where directors are becoming part of the cell. Um, you know, and Robert Icke is a good example of that, but there are a few others, like Rupert Gould, where people go and see stuff because that director's involved with it. Wow. Um, anything you want to add, Zilbo? 
Uh, just no, I, I think you've, you've hit the nail on the head. I think there is an intrigue around Macbeth because it is a bit of a fresher play for most people. Um, the Almeida is, you know, everyone loves it. It's popular. It's cool. It's in Islington. And I think people are looking to the theater for nice nights out and they have, you know, in places like the Bridge Theater and the Almeida. And, the, you know, these are all part of that with their fancy snacks and their wine and their CMB scene and, you know, right next to Ottolenghi. I mean, I just think it's a night out as well. So I think the combination of, of genuine intrigue with the play plus the the experience and and the and the, the theater's coolness and yeah maybe the director's superstar credentials um, are all part of it. So join us next time for <laughs> State of Fear, which we've been threatening to do, but finally Tom and I are actually going to be in the same uh, room slash space for several days. We're gonna we're gonna get on with it and we're gonna create you a good episode on State of Fear by Laura Laura Dodsworth State of Fear by Laura Dodsworth neither of us can ever remember her name but that doesn't mean it's not important 